0: This is the Law and the Future of War podcast, brought to you from the University of Queensland Law School. Through conversation with experts in technology, law
1: and military affairs, this series explores how international law regulates new military technologies. Today, we're talking to Dr. Shannon Zimmerman to continue our series about entertainment and the law. Dr. Zimmerman is a lecturer in strategic studies at Deakin University at the Australian War College and research fellow at the Asia Pacific Centre of Responsibility to Protect at the University of Queensland. Her research focuses on norm implementation in UN peacekeeping missions, and specifically looks at the protections of civilians and counter-terrorism in peacekeeping operations. Today, however, we're going to be talking to her about something slightly different. Thank you so much for joining us Shannon to talk about your work on Doctor Who and genocide. My pleasure. So, why Doctor Who and why genocide?
0: That's a great question because it's a bit out of the usual for the type of academic work that I do. But I had just finished my PhD, which did have a focus on protection of civilians, so all the atrocity crimes, including genocide, but also war crimes, crimes against humanity and ethnic cleansing. And once you submit your PhD or anyone who's done big academic assignments, you need a bit of a break afterwards. So I had this break of time, but I still wanted, of course, to do some intellectual work and some research. But I decided to reward myself with some a few couple of days of watching my favorite TV show, which is Doctor Who. Um, right. So I was just going back and you know watching some of my favorite episodes. And in the middle of one episode, I heard the word genocide pop up and that academic radar in me was like, wait, what? What's this? This I hear. And once I zeroed in on that word, I started to really focus in and they were talking about, you know, the doctor had, you know, inevitably found themselves as they do in one of those situations where there's two conflicting sides and one side was clearly talking about committing genocide against the other and the doctor you know said you know look up genocide in the dictionary they'll see a picture of me and the phrase over my dead body and I was like oh that's really interesting like and then I got thinking about Doctor Who a bit more in depth and of course if you look at the history of that character you know one of the reasons for the doctor being the wanderer that they are and going on all these adventures is because they had to commit the genocide of both their race, the Time Lords, and the Dalek race, because the only way to stop the Time War was to wipe out both races so they wouldn't destroy the universe. But that's still genocide.
1: Spoiler alert, by the way. (laughs) If you haven't
0: uh, seen the the TV show. And that sort of led me down a rabbit Mm -hmm. hole because... Then every episode I watched from then on, there were references to their past, which was clearly influenced by this atrocity crime. But also the doctor kept falling into situations where there really were like these high stakes. That's what makes the show interesting. It's like the survival of mankind Mm -hmm. or entire groups of one particular race or another and the doctor's actions to save or not save those individuals. And as an academic, once I had zeroed in on that, I couldn't let it go. And I took a step back and I thought, well, if I'm going to spend all this time thinking about it, I might as well actually formulate and see what comes of it. Mm -hmm. But I'm a political scientist by training, so I can understand atrocity crimes, the dynamics and the history around the legal structures and the norms against atrocity crimes and responsibility to protect. But I don't know that much about popular culture besides being a consumer of mm-hmm. it. And so I had to delve into this whole different mm-hmm. amount of literature, which is actually fascinating, because if you think about popular culture, it's highly politicized. It's a reflection of the world we live in, good and bad. You know, you've got West Wing, but you've also got House of Cards showing you the two sides of the political sphere. But science fiction in particular, is a really useful tool for understanding how political ideas are consumed and understood by the general population. Mm-hmm. The nice thing about science fiction is there's enough fiction, that there's a bit of separation. And yes. so people are able to sort of explore things that are still relevant today, but without those emotional or political hangups that we have when we're talking about real life situations. Um, but the science part of the fiction means it's, it's realistic enough that it's still somewhat applicable to daily life. And so I'm thinking about the science fiction show, and not only is it a science fiction show, it's very popular, but it's been on for decades. And that's actually amazing because it means I don't just need to look at Doctor Who's understanding of genocide now. I can look at how it's evolved over time because mm-hmm. this show has been around since 1960 something, a very long time. Mm-hmm. And thus was my excuse to sit down and watch all of Doctor Who again, which is exactly what I had wanted to do in the first place.
1: Great Um, opportunity to to delve into something with a dual purpose. Exactly. So you've raised a couple of really interesting points that we've picked up on themes speaking to people about representation of atrocity crimes in popular culture. Uh, But I think what's different in terms of your study is this longitudinal survey of how attitudes towards it might change given the reflection of what you're seeing is in effect a reflection of the writer's understanding of what genocide is over time. Genocide itself is a relatively new term. We know it was coined after the conclusion of World War II. The name of the crime hadn't existed prior to that point in time. Mm -hmm. So what were your observations or what did you learn about the history of this crime as a consequence or the attitudes to this crime as a consequence of your your study?
0: I was a bit surprised at the findings that I found because I sort of assumed that the intellectual groups that were really focusing on genocide and atrocity crimes more broadly would sort of be ahead of the game because they're sort of considered like intellectual elite and then popular culture would sort of follow as these ideas trickle down. And I felt that actually wasn't the case. Mm -hmm. In looking back into the original Doctor Who, there were instances where, you know, the Doctor did intervene in things and Time Lord Law said that they had to remain impartial. That was part of what being a Time Lord was. And the doctor obviously didn't do this. And there's a couple of scenes when the doctor's actually on trial for these interventions. And he's arguing. And eventually the Time Lords concede that, okay, the intervention that they did was valid because it was to stop an atrocity crime. But they still found the doctor guilty of breaking the law. And this was kind of actually mirrored mirror. The... Uh, instances we have in history where, say, we have Vietnam intervening in Cambodia to stop the atrocities by the Khmer Rouge who slaughtered about a third of their population. Mm-hmm. There's a similar intervention in the 70s where India intervened in Bangladesh to stop the Pakistani um, atrocity crimes, and they were condemned for these actions. They were said, no, you, you broke international law, mm-hmm. crossed sovereign borders, mm-hmm. regardless of the reason. And so Dr. Who's already said, well, this is not appropriate. The doctor saying, we should change this. And the time lords were shown as like old and stuck in their ways and kind of on the wrong end of time Mm -hmm. and history. And that's what we were sort of seeing a strange reflection where popular culture was ahead of what was actually taking place in reality. Mm -hmm. Then we get to 1999 and the the NATO intervention in Kosovo, Mm -hmm. which was not really condemned, even though it technically was illegal. It was considered morally just Mm -hmm. if illegal. So you can see the international community kind of evolving, but popular culture was ahead of it, which it can sometimes be, especially when it's science fiction. Yes. But then I actually saw some aggression in the new Doctor Who. It wasn't as forward leaning, maybe because we know more about these problems and they're more complex and they're a little harder to untangle. But I mostly focused on the new Doctor Who just because it's more complete. We don't actually have all of the old episodes. (laughs) And saw that, you know, the Doctor's not this deity like character. They're quite Valuable like any entity. I won't say human because they're not. Uh, <laughs> it's and, of science yeah, science fiction. yes, that's the joys of science fiction. But you can definitely see where the flaws in our understanding and our approaches to genocide and atrocity crimes started to become very evident because they did treat them more overtly in the new series, and that allowed these problems to sort of arise. So it was a bit bittersweet that my favorite hero was not not as actually heroic as I thought, mm-hmm. but also in some ways it was a good sort of understanding that we don't fully understand what we're grappling with. And as imperfect people in an imperfect political and legal system, there are some severe challenges to dealing with atrocity crimes. And they did start to come out as I analysed the new
1: series. Two questions that spin out of that for me. One is how the definition of genocide might have changed over time or the understanding of what genocide was might have changed over time, in those seasons. And then the second was in terms of intervention, talking about just cause for intervention and the dialogue behind justification for use of force. Mm -hmm. So in relation to the first, was there any marked difference in the way that the term genocide was being used in popular culture from your analysis?
0: I would say it was always used in the most clear and obvious definition. So they always had really high stakes and the genocide was a legitimate genocide Mm -hmm. of an entire race, Mm -hmm. say through the destruction of their planet Or in some other cases, there's only a small number of individuals left and through the destruction of those individuals. They didn't have sort of the the nuanced understanding that there's a lot of intent behind genocide. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was really sort of a basic understanding. And that carried throughout. I didn't see a lot of nuance
1: uh, evolve. In terms of there being smaller sets of crimes that are part of a broader whole plan to the genocide. Because that's, again, the joy of science fiction is you can make the scenario fairly... Obvious and destructive. And yeah, aesthetic. there
0: tended to be good guys and bad guys. And in mm-hmm. the few cases where there weren't clear good and bad guys, and there were a couple. So for example, there was an episode where you have this race that lives underground that had been there for many, many years. They'd been on Earth, and they thought things were becoming uninhabitable due to asteroid strikes. And they went underground and started to hibernate. And then were woken up by humans because obviously this uh, horrific catastrophe didn't happen, and then wanted to retake over the world. And so it's kind of this... There's a challenge now because you've got this original race, Mm -hmm. which is a really interesting sort of analogy for, say, Native Americans or indigenous people. Mm -hmm. And then you have the human race as we know them. And this is where I saw some weaknesses in the character. They ended up having this original race or go back to hibernating because humans weren't ready to accept them. Mm -hmm. And that was a bit disappointing because it was sort of the deus ex machina solution. You don't have the option Mm -hmm. of you know, asking one side to just, you know, wait and think on it for 10,000 years until the other side matures a little bit. Mm. That's not something we have. In science fiction, it is. Mm. So I did see a lot of cases where they did have these vexing problems, these escalations to genocide. One thing the show does do well is show that... the the escalation, like the rhetoric, mm. how people or how one side would dehumanize the other de-alienize, start, whatever. Yeah, de-alienize, mean, yes. Or like emphasize the otherness. Say yes. like they're not like us, yes. they're savage, they're uncivilized, mm. like using all of the key phrases that you see preceding any act of atrocity, crime, and genocide, that dehumanization. Um, and you could really, really see that, but then the solutions that were found seemed to be quite unrealistic. And mm. of course, that's sort of why it's the doctor who's an alien and we don't have that luxury in the real world. Right. And so I think it does kind of echo the way the popular culture understands genocide as a vexing problem that we don't have good solutions to yet. You know, we have idealized results where new worlds can be created, where there's enough space for everybody to live happily ever after. That actually happened in an episode. And then there's or other sides just like, Having a 10000 year cool-off period, but we don't have that luxury. So in some ways it, it's quite true. But I'm not sure it provides any additional answers that sometimes <laughs> political science can do it, can tease out new answers. Doctor Who doesn't quite do that for us in, sure. regarding atrocity crimes. <laughs> Which I guess
1: there's a lot to ask of it. It is a lot. Show. It's a lot to ask. You know, <laughs> and
0: like things like Star Trek do deal with the whole data. Can androids do they have rights? Things like that. Mm-hmm. But I don't think this particular sci-fi show has decided to take on genocide as a term it wishes to dig into sure. and i imagine many of the viewers are thankful for that so yeah,
1: i suspect you're right so in relation then to um you were saying that they portrayed the escalation and the build-up to these crimes occurring what time period were they occurring in terms of when the series aired was there any correlation with real life events to reflect i guess what was happening in the world so was it around when we saw a lot of discussion or awareness of what was going in in somalia or, or not
0: no not particularly because the show went off air and then didn't come back missed mm. all of those big events mm. where we started to really have that international understanding of there are atrocity crimes occurring we have a responsibility to act to them mm. especially because there was now enough media that We were seeing these atrocities happen. They weren't just something happening in a faraway place we knew nothing about. We were Mm -hmm. actually seeing like photos from Rwanda, a newsfeed from Bosnia. And so they didn't have the option for that to be a reflection in the show because there wasn't a concurrently running show. They're more like echoes, I would say. Mm -hmm. One thing I did find really interesting about the show is that it talked a lot about memory and forgetting. And Mm -hmm. so... There's that echoed refrain from Rwanda when that genocide happened. When the UN had people on the ground. Um, they didn't have a mandate to act. The Security Council didn't have the political will to act. So they didn't act. Mm-hmm. And uh, 800,000 people or close to a million people died. And the refrain was never forget. Mm-hmm. Never forget that we allowed this genocide to happen. Mm-hmm. And Doctor Who has the exact same refrain. Mm-hmm. Um, so... The push for the responsibility to protect seems to wax and wane in strength mm-hmm. and political salience, mm-hmm. um, and even in, like how how it's, how legal it's understood as being the legality of it. You know, they're saying was it legal to intervene in Libya? Was it not? Same thing can be seen in Doctor Who. Like the Doctor commits that genocide of their own people in the Daleks. And that's the driving force for so much of what they do mm-hmm. in subsequent seasons. And then you have this big break. And doctor Who comes back, and that's still very salient to them. But then the next Doctor seems to remember a little bit less. Mm-hmm. And the Doctor after that, even less. And there's a conversation, which I talk about in the paper, where through complexes of science fiction, thank you, science fiction, mm-hmm. you bring the ninth, 10th, and 11th Doctors together. And they actually have a conversation with each other. The ninth Doctor is the one that committed the atrocities. Mm-hmm. And he's talking to the 10th and the 11th. And he said, did you ever count how many people died that day? And the 11th doctor was like, nah, I, I have no idea. And it turns out the doctor previous to him said, well, he knew exactly how many people died mm-hmm. and their subsequent regeneration had forgotten mm-hmm. on purpose mm-hmm. because whether it was too heavy to bear, it was still obviously driving their actions, but we're seeing that in the international community. So mm-hmm. after... Rwanda, like, no, we're never going to let it happen again. And then 10 years later, the political will was less and less and less. Mm-hmm. And it took another atrocity for the political to come back. And so there seems to be waxing waning salience after the intervention in Libya, which was successful in, we hope, preventing atrocity crimes. It was preventative, which was really excellent. It was an opportunity for us to stop the crimes before they start. But we don't have from a political perspective, they can't say, look, we saved all these people because we don't know that they would have died. So it's a less tangible outcome. Mm -hmm. And then because Gaddafi was eventually overthrown and extrajudicially executed, it's kind of considered a failure. So actually it was an R2P success, but an intervention in terms of allowing a democratic state to emerge. And R2P sort of was forgotten. Yes. And so people stopped using it. It wasn't in Security Council resolutions. People advocating for interventions stopped using the language because they were afraid it was going to prevent the success of their petitions. And so you could actually see that in Doctor Who as well, like almost the exact same kind of thing, mm-hmm. which was really interesting.
1: Do you think it was on purpose or a happy accident? I think fiction? it was a happy accident. <laughs> I,
0: I do not think the writers of Doctor Who, as excellent as they are, yes. are really plugged into the mm-hmm. Security Council debates on the responsibility to protect... <laughs> I would like to believe so, but um, mm. not as many people are quite as nerdy as I am, so yeah. I don't have that expectation. I mean,
1: the, the Never ref- never Forget refrain is a pretty really it, obvious It's very, It's belief. around, and obviously
0: it's from World War II as yes. well, and I think they have taken that on, like the language was very alive for them, and the idea behind it yes. was salient for the authors, but I don't think they were in the nitty-gritty
1: <laughs> of, of what was <laughs> of happening R2P at the of R2P. An international experiment. Yeah. I mean, we've had previous podcast interviews with people talking about R2P and how we're seeing the language but we're not seeing the action. Mm. And I guess there's some similarities in what we're seeing in terms of Dr. Who undertaking action that doesn't necessarily align with the policies. So... The other part of this series or the other purpose of these series is because we're having a slightly more light, light-hearted session of podcast episodes over the holiday as season. As we talk
0: about genocide, very lighthearted. hearted Yes.
1: <laughs> well, at least there's some, this, the fiction, as you say, allows us to take a slight step back from, from thinking about it in terms of humans that we could understand and mm. know have been affected by these kinds of atrocity crimes. But it does raise the, the point that there is something we can learn from science fiction. We're seeing an increasing use of science fiction in places like the Australian Defence College where we're currently recording this episode to be used to assist in theorising the future, assessing what the future security challenges might be or trying to tease out some of these issues. I wonder if you could offer some comment on the use of science fiction as a genre for education and for furthering political science.
0: I think it's a wonderful tool. I really do because it does allow that step back. It's realistic enough that we can see its connections to the world we live in today and to the problems that we're experiencing, but it's distant enough that we don't have all of the baggage that comes along with dealing with things in our own life. Because inevitably, if there are conflicts, there's some connections, there's political baggage, there's psychological baggage. And science fiction allows us to step away into a ready-made world. Like some of these worlds are so comprehensive that they're almost more real than our world. And then to try out solutions, almost consequence-free really, Mm -hmm. to see how things work and how they fall out and what the implications of them are. I think it's a hugely valuable tool. And I think quite a few people have realized that. I mean, there's a lot of works in international relations, which is my field that talk about it, like there's zombies in international relations and Harry Potter in international relations, (laughs) what we can learn from that. I've got a book right here on my desk, which is called To Boldly Go and it's leadership strategy and conflict in the 21st century and beyond. And it basically looks at science fiction from Star Trek to The Expanse to Deep Space Nine on how what lessons we can learn from those and leadership in the military. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. There's so many opportunities. And I think it's sort of underappreciated as a forum, because think of how much popular culture and science fiction you consume on a daily basis Mm. with lessons learned that you don't actually think about. It's not like you're sitting down and reading an academic paper, Mm. but the lessons are still there. So it can be used to teach, but also to learn. And I think it's a great, a great
1: resource. Something else that has sort of come out as a theme across the interviews and we've spoken to people about Star Wars and war crimes or Eye in the Sky and its influence on understanding of IHL Mm. is I think there's a benefit in educating but there's a risk in misunderstanding the lessons because, of course, it's fiction and it's designed for entertainment that entertainment is also susceptible to external influence when we're talking about things like funding. We previously discussed Seb Camp's work in terms of the media liaison office and mm. their influence on movie scripts and what is or isn't seen in movies in Hollywood if there's a connection to the US military. What are your observations then in perhaps over-relying on fiction to influence, I mean, we're speaking in the King Charles era today, where there's a lot of commentary in the media about how the crown is misrepresenting some historical events, perhaps to the detriment of the understanding of what has actually occurred. Mm. So, what are your thoughts on the use of science fiction? I mean, how do you control it, its use in an educational environment? Or how do you influence popular culture so that the lessons learned are the right ones?
0: That's a great question. I'm not sure I have an answer for you, to be honest. There is a very very real challenge of the fact that because it is science fiction, and particularly today's day and age, it can go really dark Mm. and in ways like sort of scenarios of what not to do. (laughs) Yeah. And not a lot of it is utopian and positive. Mm -hmm. And so you're absolutely right. Each channel streaming service, you know, production company that produces science fiction will have its own biases. It will have Mm -hmm. its own funders. I mean, Dr. Who is absolutely known as being an Anglo-centric sort of post-World War II anti-Nazi superhero. Mm -hmm. And that influences everything they do as a character. Mm. And we do have to understand that in science fiction. It's not neutral in and of itself it's Mm. not a neutral thing so knowing where it comes from and what it can be used for and each individual because it is science fiction and there's a certain level of imagination is going to take from it what they want to take from it Mm. and i'm not sure that we can control that control what's being produced but i do think if we use it in educational settings is to look at science fiction through a critical lens and to acknowledge and identify baggage that it brings with it so as we use it as a thought experiment we're also realizing that it's not a blank slate it comes with its own biases that we have to be aware of as we see what we can take out of it
1: turning away a little bit from science fiction now and focusing back on the genocide side of the discussion so this is the less holiday part of the discussion Mm. now and turning i guess more the serious side you talked about the influence of politics around The response to genocide what are your views on the influence of politics in terms of enabling or allowing the continuation of these kinds of atrocity crimes noting your commentary about rtp and the lack of observance by the international community
0: i think one thing that we're still seeing is that politics is reactive Mm -hmm. and so politics are not good at preventing things politics is good at dealing with things Um, But it's not good at preventing things, although it's really good at making you afraid of things, depending on which politicians you're looking at. Mm. And so what we've seen, and it's also echoed in Doctor Who, actually, (laughs) funnily enough, is that we still do a terrible job at preventing atrocities, even though we know what precedes them. We know that there's language you'll hear, that structures are often put in place. Like when we're talking about genocide, that's a big undertaking. It doesn't Mm -hmm. just happen overnight. Mm -hmm. It takes planning. Mm -hmm. Even other things like war crimes and atrocity crimes, there's a buildup that you can identify. And they're simply with the political structures we have, still the considerably the invaluable nature of sovereignty as we've got it in our current international system we're not looking for these. And when we see them, we're not acting against them Mm -hmm. because states will say it's our sovereign right to do X, Y, and Z. And other states aren't willing to push it because Mm -hmm. if they do, then if they do something similar, they can be held to account for it. And so we end up with that gap and then it's not until atrocities have already started and in general, oftentimes already finished yes. before we do anything. Yes. And so it's still a reactive game. And I think that's the biggest weakness of politics. And I don't know how to fix that because people always say, well, it won't happen. It won't happen. But we need to remember never again. Mm-hmm. They always say that before something happens. Mm-hmm. And so what's the red line? And there isn't one.
1: I guess identifying those indicators and warnings is always the best assistance in trying to prompt political action, even if political action is is difficult to enforce. Mm -hmm. What are those indicators and warnings from the earlier stages to the immediately preceding stages if we're looking at trends in atrocities, like in particular genocide atrocities?
0: So a lot of them have been identified as obviously there's shifts in narrative and discourse and rhetoric. So you're going to see, depending on how the groups are broken up and whatever the conflict is, you'll see the intense dehumanization of one group by another, you know, not even just saying they're subhuman, but they're cockroaches or rats. This is the language we saw in Libya that triggered the intervention in Libya because that language is a clear indicator that whoever's trying to foment the genocide is wanting to make it easier for their followers to commit atrocities because It's not in human nature to kill another human, but when you view that person as something else, it's easier. So you follow the language, particularly if it's something that's in mainstream media or the very popular media that has this kind of discourse, there aren't strong narratives against it. If there's a lack of mitigating mechanisms like conflict resolution mechanisms or moderate voices, when you tend to have those two major extremes, that's another indicator. When you start seeing forces and resources being moved, in, in unexplicable, unexplainable ways. In Rwanda, it was cashing of arms and the movement of people into cities. But in other cases, it might be, you know, pulling the military into the cities from far bases. You know, there are definite indicators that something's going to happen. It could even be building infrastructure, places to, to hold people into tension. Yes. And these are all things that we can see happening and know are happening. And I think it's still part of our human nature to just, assume the best, that that's not actually gonna happen. And most countries know, not most, all countries know that genocide is wrong. Mm -hmm. And so they will try and hide Mm
1: -hmm. what they're
0: doing, but Mm -hmm. you can't hide that kind of thing on a large scale. So you'll start hearing this counter rhetoric saying, well, I'm doing this to actually protect my populations. Mm -hmm. Definitions of terrorism,
1: I think. Exactly.
0: It's been used a lot. The war on terror has been used to justify Atrocity crimes quite often say, like, well, we have to crack down on this group because terrorists are coming from this group. But they're not looking at a specific political group, they're looking at a whole group of people, whether it's based on ethnicity or religion. And those are atrocity crimes, pure and simple. But they're hiding them under the war on terror. And because that particular, you know, narrative device has such power, they're able to do so. And they're also, in some cases, hiding behind R2P itself. Mm-hmm. So say you've got one group. Sri Lanka is the best example. Their war against the Tamil Tigers, you know, both sides committed atrocities, Mm -hmm. but the government committed quite a few atrocities in the final days. And they're saying, well, we're getting rid of this terrorist group, which is terrorizing people in the war on terror. But in the course of doing so, they committed atrocity crimes. There's that dynamic of like... What's the correct approach? Where does the prerogative of the state end and the rights of the individual begin? Mm. And there are some precedents for that in international law. Obviously, we have the Universal Declaration of Human Rights.
1: Mm.
0: But that declaration, which is part of the UN, which is a state-based organization, so tends to become subservient to the rights of the state. And we don't really have a lot of clarification. There's so many various laws that have been created. Mm. But... They're convoluted enough that you can use them in particular ways to justify these actions.
1: Which I think is another interesting point in terms of what's happening at the moment in terms of discussion about the unlawful invasion of Ukraine by Russia. I don't think there is any sane commentator that can justify the basis for that action. But in response or in discourse around March this year when the event had occurred, a lot of people, students were saying, how is that different from when the US went into Iraq? How is that different from insert intervention on this basis or this basis here? So you talked about hiding behind R2P. I think the interventions or the precedent of interventions by states definitely might the border in terms of what is or isn't lawful. Do you have any observations on the connection between R2P intervention and Doctor Who? <laughs> I...
0: <laughs> Can connect at least two of the three, but I do have to <laughs> declare the biases regarding Ukraine. I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Ukraine for two years, mm-hmm. so I feel very strongly about the conflict in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. But if you look at Russia's rhetoric for the invasion, they're saying, well, we're invading to protect Russian citizens from, from genocide. genocide in these Far Eastern regions mm-hmm. of Ukraine. I lived in the Far East. Ukraine Mm. and everyone was Russian speaking and very much identified as like Russia was their brother. So I'm not sure where that rhetoric comes from Mm. and the justification for it. I didn't witness anything, but again, I was one person in one small part, but they're absolutely using the rhetoric of R2P. The problem Mm. is, so R2P is very hard to get to trigger because you have to show that these crimes are imminent or have happened. I don't believe Russia has been able to show that. I don't think the United States was able to do it in Iraq either. They used weapons of mass destruction, but as we all know, they didn't find any. So I would consider both of those interventions were illegal. And so there's that connection. And so taking this back to Doctor Who, the doctor does intervene, but they do so a couple of cases with quite a lot of authority. Because there are a few episodes where they're actually sworn in as the president of the earth, (laughs) which is a very interesting position that's above the secretary general of the UN, who at one point in time actually hunts the doctor down. And is like, this problem's too big. It's your problem now. But what's nice about that is Doctor Who in that context is Commander-in-Chief of Armies as well, which is a power the UN Secretary General does not have. Mm, Which is, I get, one of
1: the complaints about the UN One of the
0: complaints about That's why the UN doesn't work. It doesn't have its own army. Mm. And so it can't intervene unilaterally. But in those cases, the doctor's left in the position of deciding when and where and how they intervene. Mm -hmm. And I don't actually see the doctor taking a lot of time to make a case either, to -hmm. be honest. Mm -hmm. So there are some parallels there, but that tends to be preventative. So it is interesting to see, like they're making the case for the intervention, it's always, at least in Doctor Who, sort of a personal experience as justification, Mm -hmm. which is not going to fly in international legal terms, but that's why it's science fiction.
1: Thank you so much for traversing quite a breadth of topics and being able to draw back to science fiction. Very fascinating to talk about how science fiction can influence thinking. And I think it's really interesting because we've now had quite a number of academics. And the more I tell people, I'm talking to people about war crimes and atrocities in science fiction. I'm being pointed to more people who have looked at this particular area mm. you've already pointed to a, a fantastic book and we'll add that to the show notes but did you have any more resources either about rtp genocide or doctor who other than your paper that you would like to point out to? to?
0: so i haven't seen anything else on doctor who and genocide specifically not really surprisingly <laughs> there are a couple of really good resources out there laura shepherd and william clapton's article lessons from westeros gender and power in game of thrones that's mm-hmm. a very good paper and then of course the the ir books that are like zombies in international relations. There's quite a few people that have engaged from the international relations perspective.
1: Thank you so much for a really engaging conversation and appreciate your time. My pleasure. This podcast was made by the Law and the Future of War Research Group at the University of Queensland Law School.
0: A full list of episodes and links to additional material, as well as our contact details, are available on our website. Just search for law and the future of war. This
1: podcast was recorded on the unceded lands of the Turrbal and Yagara peoples. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present.